hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he finished the thing this day. Amen. Now let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for this opportunity uh, that you've given us uh, this night to study your word. And uh, we do ask uh, that you would help us as we embark uh, on this study, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some portions of scripture uh, that you read and you think, uh, man, that's weird. Uh, that's strange. And this narrative fits into this category. Um, at least in my mind, there are some things here that are quite bizarre. And if you think sleeping at someone's feet, trying to get them to marry you isn't weird, then um, come and chat to me later before you freak someone out in a, in a really bad way. So we should think that's weird. Um, and one of the reasons that things in this narrative are strange to us is because it's written in a different time, in a different place, in a different culture, with different customs. And it's important for us to keep all of those things in mind. And it's also important to keep in mind, when it comes to biblical narrative, a biblical narrative is descriptive, it's not always prescriptive. What we mean by that is it always accurately describes what happened, but it isn't necessarily telling us that this is something we must do so in this particular situation the text is not teaching that okay if you're a single lady you must go and sleep at the feet of the man to get his attention and i know that young men can be a little bit slow um i get that but that's not the solution and i just thought that was important to deal with it early so you don't start planning things in your mind and now you can listen to the study so you're welcome so having acknowledged that this contains some weird things according to our modern perceptions, we do need to try and understand this in its cultural context. That's key. And there are three scenes in this third chapter, and that's going to form the outline. Okay, so it's a very simple. Scene number one is the proposed plan. We see that in verses one to five. Okay, as we know, Boaz had been incredibly kind and gracious to Ruth. And this was a knock of golden opportunity on the door that couldn't be passed up in the mind of Naomi. This was too good to be true, and she intended to enter without hesitation. And perhaps this dear old lady was a little bit frustrated that things hadn't progressed already. So she hatched a plan. And it seems that this had been bubbling away in her mind for some time, probably as Ruth labored in the fields. But we see in verse 1 the desire of Naomi, and this reveals the purpose behind her proposed plan. Okay, notice she says, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? So this conveys that the plan is motivated by what is best for Ruth. So this particular plan doesn't seem to be driven by selfishness on Naomi's part, certainly not exclusively. Because she was concerned about her daughter-in-law's well-being and she was concerned about Ruth's future. But what does this mean when she speaks of rest? 
Well, the Hebrew word speaks of a resting place, and it implies security and tranquility. And it's interesting that the same root word was used in chapter 1 and verse 9, and there it was paired with marriage. So it says there, the Lord, this is Naomi speaking, the Lord grants you that ye find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So Naomi speaks of security, permanence, peace, provision that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find within a marriage relationship. And she wanted this for Ruth because this would enable Ruth to integrate completely into the Israelite society. And this is further confirmed by the final phrase in verse 1, which specifies the desired result of the rest. Okay, it says that it may be well with thee. And this is a Hebrew idiom that's often associated with attractive benefits, such as long life, material prosperity, security, and children. So it seems that Naomi wants Ruth to be happily settled, to be married. Okay, this would help her integrate into society. And it would also ensure that Ruth is provided for and protected when Naomi dies. Because widowhood was hard enough for them when there was two of them. But it would be even harder if Ruth was alone, particularly being a Moabite. So this is the motivating factor behind it. So understanding Naomi's motive, her plan was to seek out Boaz. In her eyes, Boaz was the perfect catch. So Naomi explained to Ruth the proposed plan. Now, it's important for us to remember that Boaz is a near kinsman. And this is how verse 2 commences. And this is key. So this particular plan, it's not just trying to trap some random guy. It's not trying to trick him into marriage in a moment of weakness. But rather, Boaz was a relative. And the law allowed and even encouraged him to marry Ruth. And with that in mind, Naomi discloses her plan. So she knew that Boaz was at the threshing floor. And it was here where the grain would be separated from the chaff. Okay, this was the process after harvest. And this would usually be done late in the evening. Okay, it's a little bit cooler, but also because wind was needed for the winnowing process. So that they would get their fork, dig it in, throw it up in the air. The chaff would be blown away and the grain would land in front of them. And this is where Boaz was at. And Naomi stresses that Boaz was here at this night. Okay, so, so that probably means that the conditions were perfect. And this reminds us that what's recorded here is a real story in a real time. Okay, this is not made up. Now what Naomi wants Ruth to do is have a bath, put on a nice dress, and put on some perfume, and go down to the threshing floor. Okay, so that's the plan. But she needs to stay invisible. Okay, don't be seen by Boaz until after the feasting. Okay, now when they were at the, the threshing floor, this was a joyous time in an agricultural society, and it would be accompanied by much feasting, okay, eating and drinking. The instructions for Ruth, she needed to wait until the eating and the drinking had stopped and they had laid down for the night. And the particular instruction given to Ruth was you need to pay attention where Boaz slept. Okay, because what would be more awkward than sleeping at Boaz's feet? It'd be sleeping at the feet of the wrong guy. Okay, that would be super awkward. Okay, and hence she needed 
to wait. That was the proposed plan. And as you can see to me, I think this plan is quite strange. Now, there's several things that we need to try and understand. And I will say there are varying opinions in how to understand this proposed plan. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. The threshing floor was notorious for prostitutes. Okay, that's what it was known for. Uh, farmers would sleep out in order to guard their crops. So no one stole it or, you know, the sheep got in and ate all the crop. And harlots were frequent visitors. Okay, if you think of the story of Tamar and Judah, okay, they were shearing sheep. So it wasn't crops, but it was very similar. And Tamar dressed as a harlot and it worked, meaning visits from harlots were not uncommon. And this has led some to suggest that Ruth was going as a seducer. And some of the terms used later in the narrative can have that meaning. Okay, with some Hebrew words, there's various meanings. And hence, it has the potential to be understood in that way. Uh, but I, I believe that's reading something into the text that's completely unwarranted. Okay, why would I say that? Because it completely contradicts everything that we know about Ruth and Boaz. Okay, they are painted here as okay, people of character. And also when it comes to Naomi, yes, she had some bitterness issues, but to accuse her of pressuring Ruth to be immoral and to use her body to get her way, I think that's harsh and it's reading into the text, something that's not there. But what it does show us is the potential danger of this plan. If this plan is misunderstood by Boaz, it spells disaster. If Boaz thinks Ruth is a harlot and just sends her away, then the whole plan is up in flames. Now, others believe that Ruth washing, getting dressed and using perfume was in order to array herself like a bride. So for us today, it's putting on the wedding dress, then go to the guy and you hope that should give off a pretty obvious vibe as to what you want. Uh, and again, that's possible, but I think it's unlikely. It could be very simply look nice and smell nice if you're going to win the man. Okay, so Ruth was to make herself attractive to Boaz, and hopefully this would break down any potential barriers. That makes sense. It's very practical. Still works today. Okay, if you want to win a guy or a girl, look nice, look after yourself. It could well be that simple. But there's one more suggestion, and it's this one that I favor. Okay, that this is calling for Ruth to remove her grieving widow garments. Okay, she, she may have worn the garments of widowhood the whole time in Bethlehem, and now Naomi's telling her it's time to remove them. And this is very similar to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20, after he's finished the mourning of the death of his son. Here's what it says. Okay, then David arose from the earth and washed, same word, and anointed himself, same word, and changed his apparel, same word. Okay, so the same three Hebrew words are here. And with Ruth, we, we don't know how long a widow would have worn these garments. And if this is the case, it would explain the inertia of Boaz. Okay, this is why he hadn't done anything, okay, because he'd been respectful. Okay, he noticed that Ruth is still clothed in this way. He didn't want to force himself onto her. But the removal of these garments would signify that she's ready to resume a normal life, including marriage. And although it's hard to be certain, this is the view that I favor. It seems to fit well. 
Now with that point sorted, uh, what are we to make of the whole uncovering the feet and laying down on the feet? Okay, what's that all about? Okay, it's certainly a little bit strange for us today. Now again, some suggest that it's sexual in nature, but the glowing commendation of Ruth from the mouth of Boaz in verse 10, okay, after this, seems very inappropriate if Ruth is simply using her body to get her way like a harlot. Okay, that glowing commendation does not fit. Um, yes, that there's some potential sexual overtones in the words that are used, as I mentioned previously, but these words can be used in a non-sexual way. Okay, so I don't believe there's anything immoral. Uh, it could be interpreted that way by Boaz and by others, so there is a definite risk with this plan. But I don't think that is Naomi's intention. But rather, the uncovering of the feet is likely just a way to wake Boaz up. Simple as that. Who likes to have cold feet when you try and sleep? And when he wakes up, he will discover that Ruth is at his feet. And this is an act of humble submission. And it seems that this gesture symbolized her proposal. And this makes sense with what she says in verse 9 which we'll get to shortly. So this is Ruth proposing to Boaz. Again, this is bizarre for us. Lady proposing to man doesn't normally happen that way. But the widow being proactive in kinsman redeemer cases was not uncommon. Okay? And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So this is all about Naomi looking to jumpstart things, to, to get Ruth and Boaz to the altar, if you like, Okay, for she knew that this was best for Ruth. And she probably had grandbabies in her mind as well. That would not surprise me, and you couldn't hold that against her. But this was all about providing for Ruth. So I do think it's unfair, and I believe it's reading too much into the text to suggest immorality. But this plan was certainly risky. Boaz could wake up and mistake Ruth for an, for an immoral woman, and that would have blown the whole plan up in a big way. But the plan itself okay, was not some immoral man trap. It's all about rest. It's all about marriage. This is a proposal of sorts, but again, not one to be emulated. We do learn something important and practical for our lives from Naomi's plan when it comes to God's providence. Okay, God's providence has been a central theme throughout this book. Now, when we think about God's providence, God's hand upon our lives, it doesn't mean that believers just wait passively for everything to happen and it just all magically unfolds, but it requires some initi initiative, particularly when an opportunity presents itself. Okay, so God's providence doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. Okay, if you need a job, be looking for one. Submit resumes. Don't just think a job will magically arrive. You need a house to live in? Well, start looking for houses. Okay, you want to get married? Well, you need to be talking to those of the opposite sex. You want to get involved in a ministry? Well, you need to put your hand up and so on. Okay, God's providence doesn't eliminate human responsibility, but rather it responds to providential opportunities and trust that the Lord will providentially lead and work as you respond. So we learn from this proposed plan that the providence of God doesn't get equate to human inactivity. So with the proposed plan shared with Ruth, what would she think? 
Okay, does she think this is a good idea? Or does she not? Well, verse five tells us that Ruth went about doing what Naomi told her. So she got ready and she left for the threshing floor. And this leads us into the second scene, which I've entitled the potential problem. Okay, scene two is enclosed by two statements about location. It commences in verse six. It says, then she went down to the floor and verse 15 concludes, then she went into the city. So these changes of location book and this second scene and the second scene unfolds on the threshing floor. Now, as Ruth made her way down to the threshing floor, let's try and put ourselves in her position. She must have been incredibly nervous. And no doubt she sensed that this plan had the potential to go wrong. Okay, this could work out horribly. Here she was dressed differently to normal. Okay, did, did she draw attention to herself as she made her way there, perhaps? And then how did she manage to stay hidden? Okay, remember, that was the plan. Go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you. Okay, don't get spotted. Okay, perhaps she was hiding in the shrubs or something. I, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that she followed the plan of Naomi. She watched them eat, she watched them drink, and she paid particular attention to Boaz. And, and no doubt at this time was very hard for her minds okay, to not wonder, both positively and negatively. What if he says yes? What if he says no? What if he misunderstands? Okay, her emotions must have been up and down like a yo-yo. And at times she must have thought, man, I wish they'd hurry up. I wish you'd stop eating and stop drinking. Let's, let's go. But then eventually, finally, okay, Boaz began to move. And we're told he went to one end of the threshing floor. That's verse 7. And I would argue this is a providential detail. He's in the best place for this to unfold. But then when Boaz settles, then the waiting game continues for Ruth. Okay, how, how long does she wait? Because she wants to make sure he's asleep until she puts the next stage of the plan into action. Can't get up too early. And as she went, okay, you'd have to be soft. You'd have to tippy-toe, try not to step on anything to make any noise. And she managed to navigate her way to Boaz without anyone seeing or hearing her. No doubt her heart must have been racing as she crouched down beside Boaz, trying not to breathe too heavily. And she gently removes the blanket from his feet and she lays down to wait. Okay, pretty sure she wouldn't have slept. No doubt she would have been rehearsing things silently. Her mind must have been racing at a million miles an hour, waiting for him to stir. We aren't told how long they waited, but finally at midnight, Boaz stirred. His feet were cold, and the moment finally arrived. Okay, this was the moment, but it didn't begin very well. Boaz, in verse 8, uh, he woke up afraid. I get that number of reasons um first of all remember he was there to ensure that robbers didn't take his stuff and then he sensed that there was people there and remember when this is set this is set in the time period of the judges there was much political and social instability so it wasn't unusual for gangs of thieves to come and to steal all the grain that a farmer had grown okay but once this fear had subsided he he realized there was a woman okay so it wasn't robbers it was the woman, maybe it was the perfume that gave this away. Okay, I don't think robbers wear perfume. But it must have been a relief to Boaz, okay? Phew, it's not robbers. They're not going to hurt me. But then a hundred other questions come to mind. Why, why is there a woman here? Okay, and he quickly asks, 
Who art thou? Okay, what was Boaz expecting? I'm not sure. Was he expecting Ruth? Was he thinking this was an immoral woman? We're not sure, but Ruth quickly answers. And what's interesting is here, she, she goes off script. She throws Naomi's plan out the window. Remembering Naomi's plan was wait and see what Boaz would tell you. But Ruth, she just lays all of her cards on the table. Verse 9, she says, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now remember, it seems likely this would have to be whispered. You don't want to wake everyone up. But understand, this is very, very direct. Okay. Ruth was humble. Okay. She identified herself as a handmaid. But this request, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. Again, that, that's unusual to us. But we need to understand, this is actually a marriage request. Ruth is saying, marry me. You are my near kinsman. I am a widow and I want you to be my husband. Again, talk about direct. Okay, there's very similar terminology. It's used in Ezekiel 16 verse 8. And this is the Lord talking about Israel. Okay, this is what it says. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yet I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant. Okay, remember, marriage is a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Okay, so this was her desire that Boaz would be her husband. And this phrase, thy skirt, can also be translated wings. Okay, so be covered by wings. And Boaz had mentioned this in chapter 2 and verse 12. So this is like Ruth requesting him to put this into action. If we were to put it into today's terminology, she's saying, Boaz, I want an engagement ring and I want to be your wife. And it quickly becomes apparent that Boaz, okay, he immediately knew okay, that this, this wasn't sexual. Okay? He didn't misunderstand this. He gets exactly what was intended and he reveals what he thinks of Ruth in verses 10 and 11 and again it's very hard to determine tone but it seems that Boaz has love hearts in his eyes okay he's struck by Ruth and he speaks glowingly of her so far so good and it nearly seems as okay he's ready to pull out the ring marry me Ruth but but then like all good stories there's a plot twist and this must have been disappointing for Ruth. But it does say much about Boaz. Okay? He didn't take advantage of Ruth. That says a lot about him. Okay? He could have very easily used her sexually, and yet he didn't, okay? despite the perfect opportunity. But also, he wanted to make sure that everything was done right. And there was someone else who was related to Ruth, and he was actually a closer kinsman. And that must have shattered Ruth. But Boaz being a man of integrity, he pledged that he would ensure that the other man would take care of Ruth. Or if he didn't, Boaz would then gladly do it. Okay, this is unpacked in verse 13. So that probably makes Ruth feel a little bit better. But no doubt she must have been slightly disappointed. I think she expected this plot twist. But we are told that she did stay the night at the request of Boaz. And again, that particular detail seems suspicious 
But again, I don't think this is sexual because that seems to contradict the character of those involved. I think it's more likely that Boaz doesn't want her to, to depart at midnight or one o'clock in the morning for her own safety. But Boaz and Ruth are both aware of perceptions. Okay? They don't want to be perceived in a negative light. So they ensured that Ruth left before sunrise. But Boaz didn't send her away empty-handed. Okay? She left with six measures of barley, verse 15. And this is a symbol of his commitment to Ruth. Okay? He promises that he will do what he says. Either this other man will take Ruth under his wing or Boaz would take her to be his wife. And with that commitment, Ruth headed home. And I do wonder how she felt as she made the journey home. She must have been happy in some ways, but maybe sad in others. It doesn't seem that she was aware of this other relative. I do think Naomi probably was, as in verse 20, sorry, in verse 20 of the previous chapter, it's interesting, she refers to Boaz as one of our next kinsmen. Okay, she doesn't say like the only next kinsman, one of. So it seems this wouldn't surprise Naomi. Okay, but right now the wheels were certainly in motion. And now all Ruth needed to do was get home without being seen. And this brings to a close the second scene. Okay, verse 15 it concludes, and she went into the city. Okay, so there's another change of location. And this commences the third and final scene, patient provision. It seems likely that Naomi wouldn't have had much sleep. She would have been like the child or some adults on the night before Christmas, okay, super excited, can't sleep. And she would have been thinking, I wonder if it's working. How is my plan going? What, what happens if it doesn't work? And she must have been filled with anxious energy. And as soon as Ruth returned, Naomi was quick to ask, how did it go? Tell me everything. And that's interesting because chapter 2 finished in a very similar way. Okay, tell me everything. What has been happening? And their exchange is summarized by the author in verse 16. It says, she told her everything. And we're not told anything about that conversation. The only detail given is found in verse 17. Okay, and this inclusion is significant. Especially since this records something that Boaz said. Okay, Boaz had said much to Ruth, but we aren't told. And hence, we need to pay attention to what he did say. Okay, verse 17, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. So this was part of the reason that the grain was given, okay, to not go empty unto Naomi. And some speculate that this could be a dowry payment of sorts, okay, the bride price. Uh, this was Jewish custom. Now, we need to understand this is not a purchase price, Okay, women are not commodities to be brought and sold like cattle, okay, but rather this is a promise to prepare for the wedding in good faith and a pledge for the good behavior of the groom toward the bride in this waiting period. Okay, so this could be a dowry from Boaz. But I want you to pay particular attention to the words that are used. Okay, notice the word empty. Okay, we've seen that word before in chapter 1. And verse 21, Naomi referred to herself as empty. In fact, okay, she said, the Lord hath brought me home empty. 
Okay, and one writer offers this insight. It's a lengthy quote. It's in your outline. And I think this is a really good point. He says, the word repetition here forms a long-range enclusio and sets that earlier scene beside the present one in the reader's mind. The device has crucial thematic consequences. According to chapter 1, Naomi had suffered two tragic kinds of emptiness, famine and childlessness. As a supplement to the generous provision of chapter 2, the gift of grain assured Naomi of Boaz's commitment that fullness would indeed banish famine. Hence, one part of the book's emptiness-fullness theme reached resolution. As for the second emptiness, many scholars view the gift merely as a symbol of Boaz's determination to arrange Ruth's marriage. But if emptiness connotes childlessness in 121, it likely does here also, assuming a thematic link between the two occurrences. That chapter 3 is about marriage certainly opens up that prospect, and grain, seed, is a suitable symbol of offspring. Hence, the grain probably represented a down payment on a final ending of the second emptiness. The seed to fill the stomach was promise of the seed to fill the womb. Thus, the grain assured Naomi that Ruth would soon marry, an answer to her long-forgotten prayer, chapter 1, verse 9, and that in turn would make the birth of an heir possible. In some, empty-handed hinted that the adornment of the second theme, childlessness, might lie just around the corner. And, it's, and this particular understanding fits very well with Naomi's response in verse 18. She doesn't argue, she doesn't say anything. She says, Ruth, sit here and wait. Just wait. Boaz won't rest until he has this sorted out. You will have a redeemer. All you need to do is wait. It's either going to be the nearest kinsman or it will be Boaz. But I have absolute confidence that he will do what he has promised. We just need to wait. And again, the author leaves us in suspense. Okay, a wedding is coming, but who will be the groom? Okay, Ruth and we will have to wait and see. We'll determine that next week. But for tonight, I want to leave you two thoughts of application from this particular narrative. Okay, number one, a thought about sexual purity. Okay, obviously this text, it isn't a manual about dating, proposing, or engagements. It doesn't coach us through romance. But it does teach us something that is very relevant in our culture. In case you haven't realized, we live in an incredibly sexualized time. And the message of our society, okay, we're encouraged to explore and unleash our sexuality in any way that we please. It's nearly as long as there's consent, that's about where we're at. So take advantage of every opportunity and of every person. Okay? That, that's the message of society. And unfortunately, a, a lot of Christians swallow the lie. Okay, that in sexuality, you can do as you please. Okay, whether it be porn indulgence, whether it be crossing boundaries in dating and engaged relationships, whether it be casual sex, physical or emotional adultery, and so on. And hence, as Christians, we would do well to learn from this scene before us. Okay, what one author summarized this point really well. Again, this is in your notes. He said, in the midst of a sexually charged setting where the potential for sin and abuse is high, 
Okay, this is talking about the text. This couple demonstrate their honor and integrity in their words and actions. Neither takes advantage of the other for personal gain or gratification. In a world obsessed with taking advantage of every opportunity for personal gratification, rare indeed is the movie that shows characters in sexually charged circumstances not fulfilling their self-interest. We need encouragement that to act with integrity is not only possible, but preferable. Okay, and this is a message for us in the times that we live. Okay, my friends, we need to be different. We need to steward the gift of sexuality as God intended, but we certainly need the Lord's help for this. Okay, and, pray, and praise him that our Lord Jesus, he lived a perfect life sexually. He died for our sexual sin, and now with the help of the Holy Spirit, we too can live a sexually pure life. It's possible. Okay, we don't have to be in the pits doing these filthy things. Okay, that's going to be different in our varying situations. And also remember, okay, we don't need sex to live a fulfilled life. Nor is it part of our identity. Okay, that's what the world is preaching. But our identity and our fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing for us to learn from this account. And the second thing is that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Last week we saw that Jesus had to be like us in order to be our redeemer. And he did that in the incarnation. This week we see that the kinsman redeemer had to be willing. Boaz was willing to do it. And my friend, how astonishing that Jesus was willing to be our redeemer. Jesus was not forced. Jesus was not coerced. This was not something invented after the horror of the cross to try and make the best of a bad situation, but rather Jesus willingly, voluntarily, and lovingly became our redeemer. That is an astonishing truth. That is one that should thrill us. That is something that should grow our love for the Lord. That he would willingly become the redeemer for people like us. Sinners, rebels, reprobates, whatever description you want to use. And yet Jesus became our redeemer. That is incredible. And just like Ruth in the text is waiting for her redeemer... That describes our current state. We're waiting patiently for the return of our Redeemer. The, re the difference is there are no other potential Redeemers like in the text. Jesus is the only Redeemer. But we wait. We're waiting. But there will be a time when we will be with our kinsman Redeemer. But for now, he's busy preparing things for us. And like Ruth, we wait patiently for our Redeemer. And what a day it will be when we meet our Redeemer face to face. When we meet the one who lovingly and willingly became our Redeemer. Brethren, that's our great hope. And I trust we long for the day when we see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word, and I thank you for this chapter.
uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, yes, it has some things that are uh, a little bit peculiar um, for us today. Uh, but Lord, it has an awful lot to teach us uh, as well. And uh, I, I do pray that uh, each of us uh, has something to take home tonight uh, to, to apply uh, in our lives by your grace. Lord, please keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.